to welcome you all today uh, to the first podcast for the Global Summitry Journal. It's my uh, real privilege to have with us Henry Farrell, who is a, uh, uh, an associate professor at uh, George Washington University and was good enough to uh, join a bunch of us at Princeton University recently for the Princeton Workshop on Global Governance. Uh, thank you, Henry, for joining us today. Well, thank you for having me. It's an honor for me to be on this and to be the uh, inaugural speaker, as it were. So what I wanted to do is we'll just start out with conversation. Um, and in doing so, one of the things I wanted to ask you, of course, was um, exactly kind of how you place yourself academically. I mean, I know you're at uh, GWU, at George Washington University now, but kind of what's a little bit of the history of your academic career? So I guess I did my PhD in Georgetown, uh, did a lot of work uh, in Italy on Italian political economy at the European University Institute in Florence, then spent a couple of years of postdoc at a at a uh, Max Planck Institute in Germany, and then uh, went to University of Toronto for two years, uh, where uh, I uh, enjoyed very much, but unfortunately for visa reasons uh, and my wife's work, wasn't able to stay, and so then came down to GW, where I've been ever since. Uh -huh. and, and your focus at GW in terms of your research and activity? Uh, focus is a very, very strong word. Uh, I would say uh, my work, I do a lot of work in the politics of the Internet, a lot of work on institutions. Uh, I am finishing a book with Abraham Newman at Georgetown on EU-US relations over homeland security, and I do bits and pieces of uh, political theory as well. So, Wow. That's quite a range of things. Let's tend to f focus now, uh, if we could, more on the international side, certainly including the uh, international political economy, which appears to be something that you spend some time thinking about. And as we talked uh, earlier before, uh, before beginning the podcast, I wanted to take a look at this uh, concept, this idea that emerges really in the American uh, domestic uh, scene, particularly around presidential power, uh, the notion of Green Lantern. Uh, and I wondered if you could describe it in the context of where it arises, which is on the issue of presidential power. Well, it arose really in discussions of American politics in the blogosphere as a result, I think, of debates between, between people by and large in the liberal left uh, who were on the one hand concerned and annoyed with all of these expressions from various people of uh, despair that the president just ought to do something about X, and in particular that the president ought to demonstrate leadership on X. And this is something that you see in op-ed pages all the time. You see uh, all of these uh, people fulminating about this or that issue, and then their policy proposal is that the president ought to exercise leadership on this issue. And the term leadership here is frankly bullshit. It's a uh, term that doesn't really say anything except that the uh, writer would like the president to do something only he or she isn't quite sure what the president ought to do but by God this is a big important issue and if only the president would exercise the re requisite amount of leadership then this problem would be solved. And so people started to criticize this and say that this was kind of like the Green Lantern who's a character in the DC Comics universe who has awesome 
um, and uh, absolutely unbounded power, except for things that have to do with the color green. And so people started to talk about how this was basically a theory that the president was like Green Lantern, that he was able to um, uh, to really express all of this unbounded power, and that the only thing that stopped him from exercising leadership on any issue was willpower. And so if you could just motivate the president to uh, express the uh, right words, to uh, exercise the right amount of leadership, then this or that problem would be solved. And so, of course, the idea behind presidential Green Lanternism is to say that this is a uh, ridiculous way of seeing the world, that the president has some power. He clearly has an executive branch behind him. He he has a ton of things he can do there. Uh, but beyond that, uh, on a lot of issues, he is more or less placed in the situation of somebody who has a bully pulpit who needs to somehow cajole the Congress into coming along in order to get something done. And so uh, thinking about the president in terms of why doesn't the president exercise leadership on X is thinking of the president as being like the Green Lantern, whereas, of, uh, whereas of course, the, the president is not the Green Lantern. The president is just an ordinary mortal who has not been gifted with superpowers. <laughs> well, that, I, I must say I learned about it, uh, obviously, uh, with uh, our good friend uh, Sheldon in the Big Bang Theory, right? Uh, he, he was the he's the character who constantly references the Green Lantern. Uh, so I don't know if you ever watched the show, but he's a great he's a great fan of the Green Lantern. Uh, <clears throat> what I wanted to do then, and uh, you may or may not uh, in, uh, buy into this, is to kind of throw that concept, the idea of uh, strong power uh, that only needs to act. Uh, and throw it onto the international political uh, arena because it seems to me there is an analogy here that often talked about and that is of course um, with respect to the question of <clears throat> American uh, leadership in the international system and there's constant uh, referencing both particularly from the American side where they say well if the United States um, doesn't lead then no one will and then they, of course, point to particularly the Middle East and most particularly Syria as an expression of the unwillingness of the current administration to act. And as a result, of course, chaos and murder and mayhem and all the rest of it. I wondered if you think that there is any kind of you know, analogy here about American uh, power, American hegemony and its impact on the global order. Well, where I started to think about this was in the area of international political economy. Mm -hmm. And here, again, there are a lot of calls uh, for why is it that the world economy is only puttering along where I think the OECD countries currently have a gross rate collectively of around 1%, and why is it that we don't have the requisite international leadership to do something about it, and various calls for either the US or for uh, some amorphous group of leading countries to come together and somehow kickstart and galvanize the global economy. So, I started thinking about uh, what you might call global green lanternism as uh, maybe we should be starting from the opposite premise. You know, so first of all, this has some of the same features as domestic green lanternism, this idea that if only leadership was exercised, all of our problems would be solved. And uh, perhaps instead of thinking about this in terms of a kind of a implicit green lanternism, we should instead be thinking about the ways in which the uh, global economy may serve as a handbrake 
on the uh, kinds of ambitions that uh, the U.S. and other hegemonic powers have sought to exercise in the past. That if instead of the uh, anemic growth rate that we have being a problem that can be solved by leadership, if instead it, it, it is a break on leadership, it's something that is structural, as people uh, like Thomas Piketty have uh, suggested that this is basically the long-run growth rate and there's not much we can do about it. We've uh, been experiencing exceptional circumstances over the last few decades. Then it leads to a whole bunch of interesting questions about what do we think about uh, the capacity of the U.S. or any other state to lead when it isn't able to offer the same kinds of carrots as it has offered in the past and where global cooperation does not offer the same kinds of benefits. Now, as you say, one could think about it in a whole bunch of other areas as well. You know, so I think that the Syria example is a very, very good example of that, where, again, there's a feeling as if Syria is a uh, small and relatively powerless country in the Middle East, why on earth can the U.S. just get in there, given the U.S. is a global megapower, and take care of the situation somehow? And here you see a kind of a uh, implicit uh, agreement on this between uh, some neoconservatives and a few, albeit not very many people uh, on the liberal side, who seem to agree on this idea that the U.S. ought to be able to go in there and by the, uh, by the dint of its awesome power, ought to be able to just damn well fix the uh, situation. And uh, here I think that uh, this is uh, plausibly something where, again, uh, we see uh, that this really doesn't work. And uh, this is a kind of wisdom that is associated most often with realists, but I think that uh, also can be expressed more generally. This doesn't necessarily have to do with uh, any senses about uh, any sense of the uh, realist argument about states being predominant, about great powers and whatever. There are many, many other reasons why it can be that uh, the U.S.'s powers to uh, do certain kinds of things are limited and why the U.S. may, uh, frankly, screw things up more by trying to get involved rather than, uh, rather than uh, not getting involved. And so I think that this... Global green lanternism, uh, and you know, so it's it's a catchy phrase, uh, but it is a phrase that I think encapsulates something that is true about the way in which many people, especially people uh, in the Beltway here in Washington D.C., mm-hmm. tend to think about the U.S. role in global politics. Uh, let me ask you one follow-on question with respect uh, to this uh, issue. You're suggesting, of course, that, you know, hegemony has faded away or is fading away. It's a popular view from the Beltway and, indeed, from uh, a lot of our colleagues in international relations. <clears throat> but if that's true, uh, <clears throat> at least let's, let's keep it to the uh, security side. Um, what's the replacement, if anything? Um, I don't know that there is a replacement. I guess <coughs> part of this is uh, I'm less one of the declining hegemony people than somebody who thinks that a global hegemony has always been a weirder and more complicated thing than we have ever uh, given it credit for being, and that the uh, powers of the U.S. have always been, uh, or of any other hegemonic power or hegemonic aspirant, have always been somewhat limited. It's a big, complicated world out there, and it is getting more complicated in ways which uh, don't necessarily mean that the U.S. power is reduced, but that, uh, uh, although they may mean that power is being reduced, but mean that the uh, that the uh, instruments that the U.S. has have more complicated consequences than uh, they 
than, than, than at least they were thought to have in the past. So that if you think, for example, let me give you an example where I think that there has been what you might call a resurgence of U.S. power, which is the U.S. willingness to uh, use uh, its financial clout in order to try and reshape the international political order. So here we see the uh, sanctions being deployed against Iran. We see various other things where effectively the U.S. is using the fact that it has uh, control over the dollar and using the U.S. legal system to really uh, reshape behavior of its ally allies in various ways uh, so that it can achieve uh, policy uh, goals that it wants to achieve. And on the one hand, this appears to be an enormous expansion of power. On the other hand, it also plausibly has a whole bunch of complicated consequences, complicated side effects, because uh, what the U.S. effectively is doing by leveraging the, uh, leveraging the uh, financial system that it has helped create in order to achieve uh, policy preferences, it may plausibly be uh, leading to uh, counterbalancing reactions actions from uh, business, from uh, other states, which seek to uh, remake their systems over the longer term in ways that make them less vulnerable to this kind of pressure. So I don't think that this is a simple story of declining hegemony, so much as it is a story of the ways in which the instruments which the U.S. Uh, uh, seeks to use have complicated consequences and uh, may uh, sort of lead to uh, various forms of uh, backlash or, uh, re, uh, our, our, our efforts by other uh, actors to insulate them from this, and that when the U.S. does try and go in and achieve uh, results in uh, situations such as Iraq, such as uh, Libya to a much lesser extent, it's going to find itself having a great difficulty in so doing because uh, those situations are simply so complicated that uh, with the best will in the world, the U.S. Is, is probably not going to have the tools to achieve the outcomes that it uh, claims that it wants to achieve. Well, and that, I, I take your point there. Uh, let me just raise it in, in terms of the reaction. I noticed, for instance, that the BRICS have recently talked about establishing, this is Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa, establishing a, their own um, financial clearinghouse system. And I wonder if you, uh, this is not an instance, obviously for the Russians, this would make absolute sense, given uh, the pressure they're under. But rather, but in a broader sense, the reaction against the use by the United States of those financial instruments, most particularly um, the dollar. Uh, I think that there probably is uh, some, you know, very clearly states are trying to figure this out mm -hmm. and financial actors are trying to figure this out as well. But a lot of this, I think, may be achieved. We tend to focus too much on the state. And a lot of this, I think, may be the action may be happening in financial institutions. If I, if I were a uh, financial institution, for example, I would, uh, in Europe, I would be structuring all of my uh, interactions in order to make sure that I had as minimal a degree of contact as possible with the U.S. system. Uh, you know, so clearly on some clearing houses play an important role in that, but also sort of not hiring U.S. persons uh, in certain capacities. Uh, there are various ways in which you can structure your corporate structure so as to minimize risk. And so I think that there is a, uh, you know, so that, that, that we tend to focus on states and state responses, which are important. But when 
when we're talking about the ways in which the U.S. uses its uh, muscle in financial markets, we also have to look at the ways in which uh, financial actors restructure themselves in order to uh, either minimize or perhaps sometimes even actively to evade the uh, control of the U.S. And uh, here this is a set of reactions which, because they're semi-invisible to us, we tend not to think about and which I suspect uh, and I have no particular reason for saying this, I suspect may prove to be the more consequential over the longer term. So uh, do you, have you identified or do you have evidence for the, the private sector actors and their efforts to kind of uh, get themselves out from under the kind of uh, structure financially where they're open to U.S. sanction pressure? Um, I don't. I, as I say, this is me. Uh, this is me. I'm sort of uh, speculating. You know, so you hear anecdotal. Uh, you hear anecdotal stories. But the point being that uh, clearly, if you are engaged in this kind of stuff, you probably don't want to be announcing this too widely. <laughs> uh, you know, this is the, the, these are the kinds of things that you uh, probably do. Uh, you probably do in a much less uh, in, in, in not in a clandestine way, but uh, certainly in a way that you do not announce your uh, intentions to the world. Uh, but I, I also think, and this is something that we have discussed uh, in the past, uh, that, that there's a lot of interesting ways in which private actors are also seeking, and again, this is uh, hard sometimes to measure, they're seeking to use some of the opportunities of this world that trade has built, in a sense, uh, in ways that are perverse and unexpected. So that if we look, for example, at bilateral uh, investment dispute resolution mechanisms, uh, the ways in which uh, businesses, for example, restructure themselves so as to take advantage of specific bilateral treaties by uh, establishing a uh, by establishing a, a daughter company in a particular jurisdiction which has a uh, bilateral investment treaty with another jurisdiction that they want to haul over the coals and then uh, taking a case under that so 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 you see again this is not a simple story of the US or states losing power as such uh, so much as the uh, way that the uh, that the business actors and other actors they look out there, they look at the international institutions that are there. They look at the and they try to figure out what are the ways in which they minimize risks, what mm -hmm. are the ways in which they maximize our opportunities. So, in a sense, I think for me the uh, the key organizing phrase for understanding the way that the world works is from William Gibson, the science fiction writer, who talks about technologies and says that the, the street finds its own uses for things. And so the idea here is that, they, that you get new technologies which are thrown out there and which are used in all sorts of unexpected ways because people on the street uh, simply have ways of thinking about this that the designers of the technology did not anticipate. Right. And I think that there's something similar that happens with global institutions. Uh, we see these institutions being built, uh, sometimes by states, sometimes increasingly by non-state actors, and being deployed in all sorts of unexpected ways uh, by people who are paid uh, you know, quite substantial amounts of money to think, in, uh, to think in creative ways about how institutions can be leveraged, or how risks can be uh, reduced or minimized by looking at, the, uh, by looking at uh, regulatory arbitrage of one sort, and uh, the more complicated that the world gets, the more opportunities there are for this kind of arbitrage, and the uh, more difficult it is for states to anticipate ways in which uh, other actors are going to make use of the institutions that they have created. So, uh, as, you, as you're well aware, many of our colleagues have begun 
after some delay to look at this growing complexity of institutions uh, and arrangements that are there in the global order, and you're beginning to focus on some of those, uh, particularly in the non-state elements, so ISDS, which is created by states, but then potentially used by corporations in the way in which they structure benefits and and potential benefits into the future, ISDS being these dispute resolution clauses in, in these free trade arrangements. And I'm sure there are many other uh, aspects that may, uh, may actually uh, be of interest to you in developing global order kinds of uh, analyses, I take it. Uh, yes, this is something that I mentioned my colleague Abraham Newman. Yep. And uh, as academics, we've been studying this over the last couple of years. We've been putting together a, uh, what, a research agenda on what we call somewhat grandiloquently <laughs> the new interdependence, uh, which is really just a uh, catch-all that I think sort of uh, tries to throw all of these uh, phenomena that are happening into the world into clearer light. Because in, in, in international relations, we tend not to think very much about this because I guess uh, we, you know, we have tended to focus on states and uh, interstate transactions as being the key driving forces in the world. Mm -hmm. And these continue to be crucially important, uh, but uh, the ways in which actors make unexpected use of, of these, including sometimes actors within the states themselves, because we cannot forget that states themselves are their bundles of different agencies and organizations which are often juking it out with themselves for uh, budgets and for jurisdiction, and they too sometimes take advantage of these, uh, of these uh, international opportunities that states have created in order to uh, provide themselves with arbitrage opportunities to uh, do down rivals, to expand their jurisdiction, to uh, figure out ways in which they can deal with uh, intransigent domestic politicians by uh, doing an international end run around them. Mm -hmm. All of these much more complicated uh, politics. So uh, really there's a ton of interesting stuff happening out there that I think uh, isn't really very well studied by international political economy or international relations more generally. Trying to come up with concepts which can really crystallize and clarify these complicated relations is uh, difficult, and this is perhaps some of the reason that they tend to get uh, ignored, uh, but understanding this stuff is crucially important to understanding how the world works. Absolutely, and of course you and I were fortunate to be among colleagues <clears throat> just a few weeks ago at Princeton where we held the Princeton workshop on global governance, and there we had you know, David Victor from the climate change side and also Bob Cohane. Uh, all talking about these very complicated, and others obviously, talking about these very complicated structures uh, of global uh, of global policy making, which include a whole variety of actors, uh, what they call complex regimes, at least in the global um, climate change side, but clearly not just states, uh, a whole variety of others, and clearly also. Uh, Duncan Snydell from Oxford and uh, Kenneth Abbott from Arizona. Uh, they're also looking at, uh, uh, you know, below, uh, below just the state level. What I tend to argue in global summetry, of course, is the iceberg theory, right? That it's all these mechanisms below which, you know, kind of fan out and include private sector actors as well, as you're well aware. Uh, that are really now very much a part of global order activity. 
Uh, very much so. And I think that there is, as you say, there are a bunch of people who are doing interesting work on this. And uh, hopefully this is beginning to coalesce on the academic side into uh, at least structured arguments about this, which is how we proceed forward, and, uh, and, and hopefully uh, real research that can then be of use in, uh, to a variety of people, including policymakers within the state, non-state actors of various sorts, in figuring out what are the opportunities and what are the threats that this new, more complicated world poses to us. Thanks, Henry. Thanks. You so too, much. Alan. Thank you. Bye. Bye.